Rick's like, come on, man, I'm trying to do jello shots. You want me to destabilize another Middle Eastern country? Well, it's no, 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 no. <laughs> we're, do, we just, we're doing digital polygraphs. So it's for like speeding up their hiring processes and shit. I love how what you just did like segues so good into the episode. Because... That's why I did it. Yeah. Go ahead. Take it away. But it's not, we didn't do an opening. So like, I'll have to, we'll have to do an opening with this guy oh, okay, okay, that okay. we're doing today. It's like one of the first guys ever to use polygraphs ever oh. in the States. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. Huh. So I don't Damn, know. Now I feel you... like I'm being watched. That's fucking wild. <laughs> <laughs> it's all simulation. It was building up to this moment. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it is all simulation. <laughs> <laughs> like, of course. <laughs> yeah. yeah. An elite team of private detectives. What if balloons are aliens? Like, maybe that's the key component we're missing. Cover-ups. John's guilty. Mysteries that need to be solved. Maybe Mormons need mountains. Richard, shut up. I don't know how we should open this. Maybe we'll just do it the way we just had it because it's fine. This is going to be a three-part series. Every part of the series isn't just a big continuation of the last part, RJ. It's all three different subjects, but they all connect. So, okay. Yeah. So, this could be our uh, first guy we're talking about today is Elliot Ness. I don't know if you guys know who Elliot Ness is. Do you guys learn about him in the States? Untouchables, right? Untouchables, correct. Yeah. Did you know? Okay, what Untouchables? What are you talking about? What's Untouchables? Just for yeah, the, the, the Oh, the, the movie with Kevin Costner. That's awesome. But did you know there was a TV show in 1950s called The Untouchables starring? No, but is it good? I did not. There's, that's actually fake. That uh, There's no such thing as any TV or movies prior to 1993 <laughs> uh, that are worth watching or actually exist at all. So I know I'm always looking for old TV shows to watch though, because there's so few of them that are actually good. In my opinion, it's like, unless you only like watching it for it being black and white, there's no reason to watch it. But if the storyline is good, which it sounds like they based it off of something real. So it's probably not. Oh, it's embellished to no end. You'll see why in a couple seconds. This is, this is the 19, I forget what year it's 1959. I believe episode of the untouchables starring none other than, the king of mysteries himself, Robert Stack. Oh. I write you off, Mr. Ness. It's the same when we was kids. There was always some kids that wouldn't play along with the others. Maybe didn't like your rules. No, no, that's not it. It's because you guys are all alike. You're yellow! <laughs> <laughs> Was that mustache just Sharpie? I don't know. I'm not sure, but it looks like it for sure. That dude was covered in paint. <laughs> this is how they did motherfuckers back then. They had to con. They were like caked in like six pounds of powder. You know how hot movie sets used to be? It would be like 112 degrees, and like in any given scene in a movie that old. Oh yeah, for sure. I, I, you know what? Let's look at it again because I'm pretty sure you might be right. That's mustache. That's not a real mustache. Look at both of them. Their faces are way too fucking smooth. Yeah, Ro- Robert Stack is Elliot Ness in the show, and Amazing. I will put it. In, I will put it in the show notes for everyone. But I do love that our mystery man was in this fucking TV show for like four or five years too. Wow, yep. that's real, dude. I think that's real. Off, Mr. Ness. Nah, let, wait till he gets slapped in the face. Some kids Hold that on. wouldn't play along with the others. Right. Maybe didn't like it. Doesn't rules. quiver. No, no, that's not it. It's because you guys are all alike. No, it's got... You're yellow! It's got texture. Oh, it does have a little bit of texture. It's It's definitely fake. 
Yeah. 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 <laughs> it looks like they took it off someone's eyebrow. Like, hurry up with the mustache. Hurry up with the eyebrow. We yeah. need a mustache. Yep. Yeah, that's that's definitely like cat hair or something. Just <laughs> gelled to shit. Yeah. So that's cool. We're doing a three-part series. Elliot Ness. Next week we'll do, or next two weeks we'll do Al Capone. And then the week after that we'll do The Butcher of Kingsbury Run. Or the Cleveland Torso Murders, which we actually talked about when we were doing Black Dahlia, how they thought it was connected to the Cleveland Torso Murders. And I said, I'll do a full episode. And that's what got me to this. Let's do all of them. So, you know, the untouchables part of it. What is, uh, you guys, do you guys learn this in school? Like who Elliot Ness is and shit like that? God. Um, I'm curious. Well, te- technically, all, all American school is, is movies with Kevin Costner. So we... <laughs> We learn about history by watching The Untouchables. We learn about global warming by watching Waterworld. Um, we learn about it's a good, uh, it's a good movie. Love by watching The Bodyguard. Um, and what about you? Learn about the U.S. postal system from The Postman. Yes, that's right. Yep, that's how that functions. Um, we learn about how to uh, get away with uh, murder by watching Mr. Brooks. <laughs> Running out of. Kevin Costner movies. Oh, something with uh, Indians and Dances with Wolves. Yeah, you guys just learned. <laughs> it wasn't that bad. Look at this movie. Yeah, yeah. No, no. It's a tr- <laughs> more like Trail of Smiles. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, do you did you hear about him before, Gats? I, I, I want to say we probably were taught about him, but I, I truly remember nothing. Nothing? Mm-mm. Okay, well, you remember the Untouchables movie then? That movie's hilarious if you've ever watched it. It's got some very key scenes in uh, hilarity. Like, there's a part where Kevin K- Costner kicks in a prohibition door and he's like, let's do some good. And then they just bust a place where there's nothing. And it's like, very well done. The whole scene, he just like disappoints himself. I just, let's, we didn't do any good. I actually don't know if I've ever seen the Untouchables either. It's a good one. I, I like it. It's a good gangster movie. I'm adding it to my watch list right now. If you don't know much about him, the, what most people would know is that he's just like the police officer that took down Al Capone, prohibition lawman, Booznark. Great. So, seems like a cool guy. Elliot Ness, mm-hmm. calling the cops on you because you're drinking or being the cop that stops you because you're drinking. Cool. Al Capone wasn't actually taken down by him. He was taken down by tax evasion, which everybody kind of knows too, I think. But he did have a part in taking Al Capone down. And that's just the early part of his life. He added a whole life after that that people don't really know much about. I didn't. I don't know if everybody else doesn't. I just thought of him as the Al Capone guy. He was done that by the time he was 31 years old. That's the interesting thing. So Ness was a big American hero, but he actually died a drunk and penniless. To me, that's hilarious and ironic that he was the prohibition guy and died a drunken fucking mess. Let's see what happened to this dry, drinkless detective that turned him into a deadbeat drunk. (laughs) I did it. I alliterated first, you guys. <laughs> I did an illiterate. <laughs> I did illiterate. <laughs> Elliot S. was born April 19th, 1903 in Chicago to his Norwegian immigrant parents, bakery-owning parents, Peter Ness and Emma King. Has anybody been to Chicago before? I've never been to Chicago. I have not. I don't okay. think so. Pretty famous city. I was just curious. I was going to see if some of these places make sense to anyone. I don't know. They don't relate to me. They lived in the Kensington neighborhood of Chicago, which is apparently in Chicago's south side, which was oh. at the time, I don't know if it still is, but it used to be a bad part of town back then too. Everyone drank there even in the early 1900s when it was illegal. Uh, a lot of places just like banned drinking, like a lot of other districts. 
So the only place that didn't ban saloons was Kensington. So like that's where everyone went to drink. So it was called Bumtown. A nickname for it was Bumtown. It's where all the bums go to drink. Nice. I like old school 50s like stuff. You going down to Bumtown, eh? Gonna go get drunk. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I like 50s. It's funny. Elias was the youngest of five. And between him and his next oldest sister was 10 years. That's a pretty big age gap. That being said, Elliot's dad, how what's your age gap between your brothers? It was like, is it 10 years when I was writing this, RJ? It is 15. Okay, it's not that huge, I guess. But you're pretty much out of the house by the time they're around. Like you were hanging out with their friends. Um, I I mean, well, I yeah, I mean you they were babies friends. when I was around. Yeah, like but um they uh uh what do you call it? Um probably probably by the time they were four. Yeah. So it's a it's just an interesting I don't have my brother's 18 months away from me. For me, it's like yeah fought with them and grew up with them i don't have that giant age gap so anyways no yeah, it's borderline an irish twin situation i got you uh it's just because they make a lot out of it more than i i don't know maybe this appeals to you so elliot's dad peter was like 50 when elliot was born and he'd, or, he'd already raised four other kids so he was like over having kids i think he was a whoopsie daisy you know what i mean should have pulled out but mm-hmm. well, we don't have contraception this is 1903 <laughs> Peter and Elliot didn't really speak much during Elliot's childhood. Really, actually, the rest of Peter and S's life, they didn't really talk. Uh, it's not like they hated each other. It's just Elliot used to say that his dad didn't talk much. But when he did, he listened because he knew whatever he was going to say was important. So, like, I don't know, one of those dads, you know what I mean? Just, like, sit, drink, and, like, prophetic words once a year. Yeah, I mean, you can't convince me any father in the early 1900s was any kind of good. Yeah, it's like, probably, yeah. Beating was like you were good if you beat your kids, like oh you're training yeah, them properly. Right. <laughs> it's true. Elliot was more of like a mama's boy. Even into adulthood, he lived at home and called his mom if he was gonna be late from work. Like he lived there till he was 27, which nowadays that doesn't sound crazy, but like in the 20s, you were like married off by the time you were 15. You know what I mean? Like you were out of the house with a job in the factory, like super young. So for him to live at home was a little weird. All of her oldest children were out of the house, so she coddled Elliot, basically. She really wanted to have more kids around the house. She missed having them around. Elliot got what the baby usually gets. It's like a way more attention than the other kids. As a kid also, Elliot used to take pride in his appearance and try to dress better than everyone on purpose. Like, that was his big thing. I like to dress up, wear a suit. I'm 10. I look really good, see? And he loved to read. Elliot was kind of a depressing loner as a kid, which I found kind of fun. (laughs) Yeah, you could read. You Fucking could read. losers could do that in the 1900s. <laughs> Fucking nerds. You don't play stickball, which is the classic 1900s game where we crack huge sticks over each other's heads until we pass out. <laughs> you fucking read. <laughs> Who's Sherlock who? Loser. Yeah. Here, eat stick, bitch. <laughs> crack. He would have ups and downs. That's what people say. He had blue moods is what the, uh, like I read a book called Elliot Ness, The Rise and Fall of an American Hero. And Douglas Perry, the biographer, describes it as if Elliot Mood was always blue, rarely seeing him in moments of joy, which, okay. <laughs> I, love, like, I love old-timey euphemisms for, like, depression. <laughs> he's blue. <laughs> Anxiety. Well, he's got the shy boy jitters. <laughs> Call him, call him a little shy fly. It's just uh, another few good games a stickball can't fix. 
Yeah, so Elliot was since he was like that uh, depressing all the time. He'd rather sit by himself, read Sherlock Holmes books, than hang out with the other kids at lunch. Ness attended Christian Finger High School and graduated in 1920. He really loved football, but never tried out for the team, just because he was like way more of a lone wolf. He didn't want to play any team sports. He's super athletic. He really was. So Ness, what he did is got into tennis, to which he excelled, which I find hilarious. Tennis is such a funny sport to me. Also because it's like partially his name. Oh, Ness. God, I was that took me yeah. way too oh, long. Wow, yeah. Wow. No, I was I was relishing in that. I was like, <laughs> oh man, really? Oh God. Elliot Tennis. <laughs> There's something there. I'm not gonna try to knit it together right now. That's okay. Yeah, so he he loved being the best at anything. So if he couldn't be the best, he wouldn't join like the football team. He was the best tennis player in his school because they said he would just at lunch, if he wasn't reading, he would just sit at a wall and just bounce a tennis ball with a racket off the wall all day long, just for practice. And here's a good one. He used to sell suits. Like his after school job was to go like sell suits at the tailor down the street. And he would sit in front of his mirror at night and just practice his sales pitch for these fucking suits all night until he like was the best salesman. Like he wanted to outsell the salesman at that sell like all day long of suits, just like on his two hours after school. That was his goal. Never did it. So never really. Good, good, good. Yeah. <laughs> good. <laughs> Elliot had. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, once you see some pictures, you might, we might all agree on that. <laughs> uh, you'll see that later in life, even though Elliot rarely wore a gun, he was the best shooter in the division because that's all he did was practice until he got better than everyone. Elliot was one of the best students in his school for the same reason to try to be the best. Uh, his strive for greatness was well known to everyone around him. Even as a kid, Southside kids were also tough and mean because of where they lived. And Elliot had that also in him. Because he was pretty big and strong, people didn't really mess with him much, but they knew not to mess with him because they knew he could beat the crap right out of them. Elliot graduated high school with top 10% of his class and decided before going to college, he was going to get a job. So he spent a year working at the Pullman plant before heading to university. Pullman, uh, just before this, had had a giant strike and it like kind of divided the community a little bit. So Elliot kind of walked into like a shitty situation to begin with. And I was like, what's this big, like, what are they making? What's this Pullman company? They just made luxury train cars. So everyone was making a big fucking stink out of like train cars. I love it. I, I love different time. Like today, everyone's like, oh, fuck it. We have enough train cars. We're good. <laughs> Nobody would be that mad. <laughs> Wouldn't divide a community. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> Work didn't agree with him. He didn't like the situation he was in. So he said, okay, fine. I'll go to school. So in 1921, Ness enrolls at the University of Chicago to study political science, commerce, and business admin. And I didn't say business. I said business. I don't know why. Business admin. <laughs> yeah. That's the... He means business. It's different. Yeah. <laughs> After graduating college, top 10% of his class in 1925, he began his career working at the retail credit company of Atlanta's Chicago territory office. So his job was basically like, doing background checks for the purpose of credit. Super fun. Oh, it'd be a lot easier if you had some polygraph <laughs> yeah, software. Yeah, it would be. <laughs> this, this is boring to Ness. He wanted to do something more exciting. So in 1927, Ness applied for a job working at the Chicago branch of the U.S. Treasury Department. 
Uh, this was after his brother-in-law, who was named Alexander Jamie, and I fucking hate first name, first names. Drive me crazy. <laughs> <laughs> you know they're like a rapist, a secret rapist. Do you have two first names? <laughs> <laughs> Date raper. That's, that's a non-controversial I, opinion. Yeah, we're gonna, saying it right now. Private digs. Uh, if you have two first names, you're a fucking rapist. 100%. 100%. Or you beat dogs to the last inch of their lives. Oh, yeah, God. One of the two. <laughs> well, could you... I mean, you could probably be both. You could rape dogs to within an inch of their That's life. if you have a lasty, lasty. If your name's like McTavish Johnson or something, then... Oh, <laughs> shit. McTavish <laughs> You fuck dogs to death for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, dude. Actually, that is a dude. Graham McTavish. He's an actor. See what I'm saying? That guy's fucking dogs right now. Right on set. They can't put dogs on that guy's set. Graham. (laughs) Anyways, this is after he applied for the U.S. Treasury Department because his brother-in-law, Alexander Jamie, rapist, who is already (laughs) a member of the Prohibition Investigation Bureau, convinced him to join law enforcement. With the help of his older brother-in-law, Pulling strings, Elliot got the job and became an agent of the U.S. Treasury Department. Uh, he liked this work, but he wanted to be more hands-on, not just sitting in an office, like, looking, piling through papers. And he wanted to work with his brother-in-law. So by 1928, Ness worked hard to be transferred to the Prohibition Bureau, working for the rapist Alexander Jamie. Wait, doesn't Alexander kind of count as a last name though too? Oh no, he's got a first so, name. Wait, he's last got last name, name, last name, first, first name. name, first name, last name, last name, first name. Uh oh. <laughs> God damn it. What does he do? What is he doing to people? <laughs> he's making dogs I... fuck him to death. <laughs> <laughs> the, the Uno reverse dog rapist. Yeah. <laughs> <All right. laughs> Yeah, so he's starting to work at the Prohibition Bureau for Alexander Jamie. Jamie was put in charge of the Prohibition <laughs> Jamie was put in charge of the Prohibition Bureau briefly, and Elliot was under his command for a little while, which was a nice change for Elliot. Like I said, he wanted to get hands-on and be in the city. And Alexander Jamie was more like of a father figure to Elliot than his father actually was. Like he was like 20s when he was a kid and he like brought him out and shot him out of shoot taught him how to shoot taught him how to drive uh and he also instilled the famous what's right is right and what's wrong is wrong values that ness was known for he was he didn't really like to bend too much in his earlier life anyway he also helped elliot through nepotism to advance his career but we're not getting into that one too much he didn't skip any grades he just did because he was really good around this time Elliot met a girl named Edna Staley. She was Alexander Jamie's stenographer, which they kept calling her a stenographer. I'm like, it's a secretary. Why are we going back to 1950? She was a stenographer and she was around the department all the time. And they were, they didn't really, I shouldn't say they met there, but they knew each other as kids. They're from the same part of Chicago, like Southside, but they never really spoke to each other or knew each other as kids. Um, So her and Elliot ended up being sweet on each other and spent many a late night hours at the office together. So soon they began to date. And in 1929, Ness went back to university to take a graduate course in criminology. This course was taught by a guy named August Volmer. 
who was a noted police reformer and the chief of the Berkeley Police Department. Now, Vollmer's big thing with police reform was that he wanted to the job of a police officer to be more professionalized. So it would be taken more seriously when they're applying the law, not just hiring like bigger and stronger guys to beat up the other big, strong guys. He wanted to like get rid of dirty cops, taking bribes, beating suspects. And he wanted to bring scientific method and investigation techniques into the police force as well. Elliot was inspired by this guy and he started, he shared his Volmer's ideals really actually kind of made Volmer's ideals a reality at a later part of his life. Um, this guy started really early with Elliot and got him hooked on being a better cop than what were out there already. And I'm not going to say 1929 cops were good at all, but I'm just saying they were worse before that. That's all. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, maybe they were better because maybe they had all the segregation rules that they could have so that black people weren't in a position to be murdered by them so freely. Elliot, I'll talk about this later, but Elliot literally hires black police officers to go patrol black neighborhoods because he's too scared. That's just fucking <laughs> incredible. Being so racist that you're progressive. Yeah, I know. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it like spun itself around. Like, I... Damn. <laughs> yeah, so Fulmer was a big influence on his life. Uh, 1929 is also the year Elliot and Edna marry. I was 27 years old. Like I said, that's when he finally moved out of the house. Uh, Elliot and uh had aspirations of children, but they never had any. Spoiler alert. In Chicago, they have a normal and loving enough life together. I find this kind of sad that the book, The Untouchables, which the movie is based on, the TV show is based on, is kind of an autobiography written by Elliot, but it's like super not well done at all like elliot did it super later in his life and he forgot a lot of people's names so like the guy who helped him write it just like filled in a bunch of blanks and then elliot dies before it even comes out so there's no way of even checking it so there's edna's not even mentioned it's his like later wife that's mentioned the whole time so edna kind of gets lost in history uh which is kind of sad she, she gets talked mm -hmm. about in like podcast deep dive podcasts and shit but if you just read the untouchables you'd think like there's no edna yeah can you imagine like that's all your life amounts to is as a footnote on podcasts everywhere. I would rather be completely <laughs> unknown. Actually, she, she said that later in life. She was glad that she was, she kept the Ness last name. Anyways, we'll talk about it later, but yeah, she's actually happy. She was forgotten. Ness climbed quickly within the ranks of the Bureau of Prohibition. He was a good agent and got a lot done, but it was also because of nepotism. I'm just going to keep saying that because Alexander Jamie is, uh, I, suicidal dog force fucker um <laughs> nepotism's like not nothing new it's been around for a long time it's it's still around to this day but like most of the time it's shitty oh yeah um i i was watching 50 shades of gray for the first time which is one of the most <laughs> awful movies i've ever seen in my okay. life Shocker. well i mean like i had like i'm i'm like what, like at least like i don't know if you've ever watched like twilight and shit like they're like at least like hilarious for a lot right. of ways that they're bad but like you get why like it appealed to like 13 year old girls you know what i mean 50 shades of gray was for adults and it is the most <laughs> uh, like all right i'm using a born in the 1990s pass the most retarded fucking thing i've ever seen in my life like <laughs> Born in the 1990s, pass. <laughs> yeah, like, dude, it it is 
such a dog shit film. And in the one of the the lead character is the worst actress I've ever seen. Her name's Dakota Johnson, and I was like, I've never seen her in anything else. Yep. Don Johnson's daughter Don and Johnson's Melanie Griffith's daughter. daughter. Yeah. And Melanie Griffith's daughter. Phenomenally good looking as well. Like if that helps too to get that. Like, you know what I mean? If it, it's not like it was Joe Pesci and fucking real Perman's fucking kids getting like, you know what I mean? It's not like it was uh, Danny. DeVito that would be awesome. <laughs> if she was, I mean, it would be, but I mean, it's the same. That would be so, can you imagine what those kids would look like? That would be so cool. <laughs> Have you seen them? They exist. Rhea you mean Perlman? Danny DeVito's yeah, kids? That's what I meant. Danny DeVito, oh, Rhea I thought you Perlman. meant specifically Joe Pesci and Rhea Perlman. I'm like, that sounds <laughs> odd. They sound like they'd be the most annoying sounding people in the world. That's probably right. I would want. I would pay money just to listen to them talk about like fucking Pokemon cards or something. Like I don't care. Like... <laughs> yeah, nepotism is usually a bad thing. Like from my experience, it's fucking terrible. Like the Dakota Johnson example is perfect example. I was. Yeah. Oh my God. But the, in Elliot's case, it was actually good. He was probably a perfect guy for the Prohibition Bureau. He is exactly what Jamie Alexander was looking for. He knew how competitive he was. He knew how he wanted to be the best. Uh, and this is exactly what he was counting on. Chicago is one of the most worst cities in America for bootlegging. And Alexander, they just like arrested his boss for murder charges. Like he, that's why they, he was in charge. And he needed to get like people that he could trust, and and Elliot was one of them. But a lot of other people though thought Elliot was like trash, like trailer trash, because most of the people in the bureau went to Ivy League schools. And they're like, who's this University of Chicago graduate, Jamie Alexander? Send your dog over when he's done. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just gonna lean heavy into them fucking dogs now. Yeah, no, uh, it's it's a great bit. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I just love the how it's all these Ivy League guys be looking down on the guy that actually like Ness is from the south side of Chicago. What a what a, that guy's dirt. You know what I mean? You're fighting mafia people, like you probably want people to help. So the fight against bootleggers, corruption, and the mafia wasn't going well at all. Other agents knew that the Volstead Act was going to be repealed soon, which was prohibition. Like they all saw it coming because no one liked it. It was the most hated thing ever. So no one took the job seriously. That that was a big part of the Prohibition Bureau. Everyone was just like, eh, it'll go away soon. Let's just chill. <laughs> Let it happen. And prohibition statistically wasn't stopping people drinking in the least. It, people, there's stats out there that said it made people drink more after prohibition, which there you go. Good job. So especially in Chicago, late 20s, early 30s, it, like I said, it's fifth largest city in the U.S., highest crime rate at the time. Uh, gangsters were running alcohol at availability more than water. Gangsters were basically just running the city. The mayor at the time was corrupted by the mafia. He was like in the mafia's pockets, this mayor. And no one really seemed to care in Chicago. Everyone was like kind of cool with it because it was just booze. Everyone was a good time. Al Capone kind of had like a Robin Hood thing about him like steal from the rich give to the poor and who cares about this prohibition fuck the government kind of deal ness cared okay others did honestly but ness cared the most does it sound like a like some kind of insurance plan yeah it's true it's just <laughs> the way he was he just in his earlier life he's such a fucking wanker i don't not like this guy he was integral in taking down like a few bootleggers in the first year and a half as an agent going undercover he, he he did his job, just an agent, whatever. But in 1930, after a couple of years of doing undercover work in boots on the floor, busting up bootlegging operations, President Hoover and Attorney General William D. Mitchell devise a plan to take down Al Capone. Al Capone was the head of the mafia who was in charge of bootlegging operations in Chicago. 
I'm sure you guys have heard of him. Um, yeah, no, I am. Uh, I went to Alcatraz actually once. That's probably where I learned the most about Al Capone. That makes sense because he was in there. For I know what everybody knows about him, but that's about it. Yeah, that's pretty much. That's enough, really, because he's going to be the subject for the next episode. We really, for this episode, only need to know Prohibition bootlegger guy. His role in pulp culture gives us enough of an idea. So anyways, Hoover and Mitchell's plan involved making a small group of prohibition agents to specifically attack Capone at his bootlegging operations, like take down a bunch of his stills and stuff like that. And the feds were already investigating Capone for on the money side, trying to get him on tax evasion. But Hoover and Mitchell wanted a quicker way to take down the kingpin. So the Chicago prosecutor directly in charge with both the uh, prohibition and income tax investigations named George E.Q. Johnson chose 27-year-old Elliot to lead a small team to take down Capone. That's how good Elliot was at his job. 27 years old, they're like, you're in charge. I was going to say 27? It's fucking wild. Capone's only wild. Capone's only like 33. Like he's young too. He's not like an old man. But when, how young did people die back then? Was he like two years 30, away from 39. Or? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, people would probably have a lot less life expectancy, but still, you still have the first part of your life. Yeah, but I mean, if they got him when he was an old man, like, yeah, fuck it. Who, Capone? Yeah. No, they got him in his 30s. Yeah, but I mean, young. Yeah, if you die at 35, like, oh, he no, had a no, good no. run. He died, he died when he was near near 50 40 easy eight i think we'll talk about him next episode but yeah he died later in life i guess like uh shit with life expectancy is all just because of like averages and stuff like there's plenty of history of like people living to be old as shit yeah for sure we just we just know more yeah it's i guess it's mostly thrown by like infant mortality or something which is like still a problem but like Not i can't like fathom way. how high it was like <laughs> people get pregnant and they're just like oh but there's also like like people say that i hear what you're saying people do that all the time with me like they go but there's also like people worked in factories got cancer like yeah. cancer and shit like it was way different we just know more diet was way worse oh yeah some fucking upton sinclair shit where like somebody's head falls into a sausage grinder yeah. <laughs> they just don't stop the line they're like no we had we had a quota all he did was add to today's weight what he did was this a favor so shut up and get to work elliot's in charge of the capone squad is what they're calling it what basically what's this part is like disputed this most people think that like legend of this goes that nest gets to handpick his team from agents all across the country the best and the brightest he had stipulations they all had to be younger than 30 unmarried and unwilling to take a bribe from the capone syndicate law enforcement in chicago and all across the country really was very corrupt and nest had like i said the what's right is right attitude he was incorruptible and eventually he found another five officers who he trusted to be the same the six men, and then there were four others added on later on uh, to the team, were later nicknamed the Untouchables by the media because none of them would ever take a bribe. There's a story where one of Capone's men said that he'd pay off Ness $2,000, two crisp $1,000 bills a week, Mr. Ness, if you just look the other way, turn the other cheek. <laughs> Wait, do, do you not actually know American money? or uh, Apparently there was $1,000 bills. This is from the biography. Shut the fuck up. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not making that up. Do I just not know American money? <laughs> I don't think they exist anymore. What they take out of, out of? They definitely can't exist. I mean, they're not. Well, also, I don't think I'm rich enough to have a stack of thousand dollar bills. So maybe they do. <laughs> and it's just not for me. <laughs> oh, I just have too much money. I need bigger bills. <laughs> it's taking up <laughs> too much room. Yes. Not a problem. I've had. <laughs> I can't fit all my stacks of hundreds anymore. I bought a king size bed. 
yeah. I need something that's worth 10 times this. That's why he bought a bigger bed so he could put all of his $1,000 bills inside the bed. Yeah, that's exactly. right. Yeah. Have enough room for him. That's the hybrid. It's memory foam and cash. <laughs> yeah, so he was offering him 2000 bucks a week to not say anything. Elliot earned about 3800 bucks a year as a prohibition agent. So that was like his wage every half month you know what i mean like um so that's this that part of the story is not exactly true according to the biography despite what oscar sorry elliot ness and oscar fraley wrote in his biography fraley's the guy who wrote the untouchables with him ness did not get to handpick his team although he did want the best of the best he did want them under 30 unmarried and incorruptible the problem was that each federal department that had an agent that fit into ness's requirements was for some reason unavailable I'm pretty sure this was commanding officers being like, yeah, no, you can have the fucking guy in the corner. You know what I mean? You're not getting my best guy. So really what's funny about this is none of the members of the Untouchables were under 30 or unmarried, except for Ness. He was not only the boss of the later called Untouchables, but he was the youngest. He wasn't the only single agent, but a lot of them had wives. And Ness didn't even trust that they were unbribable. Like Ness was known to follow his own men around to make sure they weren't taking money on the side. So he'd like, all right, guys, time to go. And then he put his hat on, like, wait for them to leave. I'm not following you. Yeah, no, dude, fuck Elliot Ness. I think this is all fucking scam. Like, somebody's just covering for themselves because of the nepotism. This guy was a fucking moron. And, like, clearly, like, I mean, not, not, I don't mean he's a moron because it sounds like he has autism. Um, because I do, but that doesn't make people morons. I think he just also was extremely irritating. Like, I, I, I want a team. All of them boys. I want all boys on my team, and they can't. They can't have girlfriends, and and they and and they will be my age. I want boys my age, and you're right. He sounds. And so they will be good boys, and to, I can fuck them. <laughs> they have to like Roblox. They have to like Roblox. Head of his time. <laughs> yeah. So. He'd follow around his agents and send other guys that he trusted to go follow them. And he, he had to fire a couple people before he had a good team. So he relatively trusted. He still like would look into them eventually too. So Ness had a big a job ahead of him and he wanted the best of the best because he knew how dangerous Capone was. Uh, just a few years earlier, Capone had lined up all of his enemies against a brick wall and executed them with Tommy guns. Uh, this is eventually nicknamed the St. Valentine's Massacre, which we will get into extensively next episode but know this everybody knew that capone was a fucking psycho and he wasn't to be trifled with and elliot ness put himself into a lot of danger starting this that that actually did happen the the two one thousand dollar bill thing that one's a real event but as soon as it happened ness called the press so he wanted to tell them like this guy just tried to bribe me for and i'm i can't be bribed i am elliot ness our guys aren't going to be bribed so that was that's how he got the untouchables name they they started it right after he just like sold out the guy for trying to bribe him over the next six months ness sets up an elaborate wiretapping program on the component organization after that the raids on capone's operations were plentiful the media caught wind called them untouchables not many historians actually think the untouchables were actually unbribable though the last surviving member of the untouchables a guy named albert wolf died in 1998 at the age of 95 and in an interview he did for people magazine in 1987 he claimed that his nickname was wallpaper because he took everything else but so they're just stealing they just didn't show elliot they were stealing they're like just smart enough not to show the fucking autistic kid they're not stealing 
<laughs> um, also, just to, to, to touch on something a little bit earlier, yeah, sure. uh, $1,000 bills, totally real, discontinued in 1943, but they did uh, feature President Cleveland's face. He is not a handsome man. Uh, but real real legal tender and if you have one you could go and spend it legally but there's supposed to only they're not out of circulation they are there they think there's like something like 165,000 of them out there but the bulk of them are in like museums or with collectors but Mm. i mean they don't know where all of them are so somebody somewhere has probably got one stuffed somewhere Somewhere in Florida, underneath some foundation of some house Capone owned when he before he died. Uh, probably. Oh my God! You know how much money? Yeah, like that is probably fucking out there. Oh, so much. Just like all the like, what's his name from Columbia? There buried so much money, forgot where it was. Yep. <laughs> I can't remember his name. Yep. Yeah, he was losing more to rats eating it. Escobar, yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, Pablo. That's right. yeah. yeah, Pablo Escobar. Yeah. People still go out and treasure hunt for it. So, like, I'm sure Capone had some bar- snook put away somewhere he was making uh, nine million dollars a year or something at his high at his peak in 19 you think you had to launder that back then like were they that good at tracking serial yeah. numbers probably not uh, i doubt it yeah. they, if there were serial numbers you know what i mean like well they didn't have fucking computers so like anybody would just like what are you gonna tell some like guy like living in fucking rural oklahoma that he can't take a thousand dollar god that used to be oh my god that, that would have been such a great time to like live in could you imagine like you just don't have money. You're just like, Fuck it. I'm going to print some. All you can think of is in terms of like, man, I could do so much crime. Oh my God. Oh my <laughs> God. So you, could, you could. Yeah, you could just break I'll the crime the shit system. out of everything. God damn. The untouchable thing, it didn't matter that like, they weren't untouchable, I think, because Elliot Ness was part of his plan to use the media to his advantage. It was part of August Vollmer's idea of like sharing with the media will actually help you with investigations. A lot of the time he liked the name being called untouchable because Capone would see that on the news and think like, Oh shit, these guys, I can't even bribe. So he would use it like as a way of like preventing Capone from approaching his guys, even to come give him money, which I kind of think is smart. Uh, I, I thought it was just cause he didn't like to be touched <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or he would really wanted to be touched, but he was just untouchable. <laughs> <laughs> We're called the Untouchables because don't touch me. Don't touch me or him or him yeah. or him or him. We're all the same grade. I am. <laughs> don't touch me or any of the other boys in my club that are the same age as me, especially not while we're reading. Now on to page five, boys. <laughs> Ness was all over the papers at the time. He loved. Uh, he'd bust into fucking Capone operations and just take an interview. I, it was. He talked about it being a part of his like campaign against Capone but like he loved the limelight dude he was all over it that was another part of the boat using that the news that he liked if they keep reporting that we're busting down these doors criminals are going to think they're unstoppable even if they're like undermanned underfunded they can't be stopped look at every day there's new bootlegging operation getting taken down which I that I actually think is actually a good tactic for especially back then when most media was disseminated through a newspaper you know what I mean you didn't really have like guy on the street being like nah it's not happening yeah, he started to adopt more modern investigative techniques to help t- take down the Capone syndicate. Like I said earlier, he started wiretapping, which wasn't a thing back then for police forces. They had it a little bit during World War One. They were wiretapping some stuff. They just kind of like had some guys in the military that knew how to do it. Just like actually tap the fucking wire. 
Yeah, literally, that's what they would do. Go yeah. in and just put fucking lines up. But they just didn't really, because it's a big mess of wire, especially a big city like that. It would be, you know, they had the old operators and they'd just like flick you to switch you to whatever. So you'd have to know where actually each switch actually went to. Like he literally had to find a guy from the army to join the untouchables to be able to do this because none of them could have figured it out without that guy. Sure. So yeah, it had, this hadn't been used in policing and like Capone knew nothing about it. So gangsters were giving up locations left, right, and center. It was pretty fucking easy for Elliot actually to like track down new bootlegging operations and stills and do raids, dump liquor. Many of Capone's breweries shut down. After his first big bust, Elliot was obsessed. He said the obsession with stopping crime ruined him for like a big part of his life. He just really just that rush, chasing that dragon, man. Got to get that rush again. Um, he always found himself at the front of a big bust, even if he was older or shouldn't have been there at all. He was just ready to be the guy kicking in the door. No gun. I love that. Scary. That's a scary thing to do, man. Like, you know, Al Capone's shooting people in front of you, not bring a gun to the scene and be the first guy in the door. Mm. Work 70 hour work weeks, many risks in his life. I also was Elliot uh, started becoming the first hero of the prohibition police. Until Ness, Prohibition had been hated, still kind of was hated, you know, but Ness was showing, slowing down Capone, who was a known gangster, a scary guy. Like I said, many people thought, like, loved Capone for being like the modern day Robin Hood, but like, it was bullshit. And Capone's strong arm tactics were the favorite of the other people who wanted to have power in the city, the politicians and the police officers. They actually wanted to run the city for once. They didn't want to be under the thumb of a fucking psycho. In just over a year and a half, Elliot and the Untouchables accomplished a lot. Ness's raids destroyed over $500,000 worth of bootlegging operations. And these raids cost Capone in excess of $9 million in lost revenue. And that's 1931 money. I didn't even look the conversion. It's a lot, though. By June 1931, Ness had put an indictment on 5,000 violations of the Volstead Act. I talked about this a lot, and I think if anybody wants to go watch the sour toe episode i don't feel like talking about the volstead act much it's just prohibition you guys know what prohibition was they stopped booze in the states because world war one and then they just kept it going because people were like my husband drinks too much we got to stop getting drink in the city he's using all our money and they actually did it and it was hated during this time volstead act or prohibition made drinking legal Ness's job was to enforce this law the indictment was prevented from coming to trial by federal judge james h wilkerson because they decided that going after capone on his tax evasion charges was a better case and would more likely end with capone in jail the bootlegging charges were to be their backup plan now in reality it was the depression and everyone hated the volstead act the DA was worried that they would be able to get a sympathetic jury trying to stop the guy from getting their booze. You know what I mean? Like, let's put that guy in jail. The only guy who's fun anymore. So they were, they thought it would be a better case to go the tax evasion way because the government had no money and give us the money so we can get more services for everyone. That's how the founding fathers should have set it up. Like, if a drug dealer gets arrested, when he goes to court, it should have to be everybody that buys from him. And he has to really do something heinous. You know, for the people and of the people to get convicted. <laughs> you just really want illegal shit to happen. I like it. You would have gotten. No, out. no, no. I mean, like they're the people, you know, you might, you know, buy illegal alcohol from someone, but they got to really prove that you did something like that. The people find bad. Right. Like, <laughs> Isn't that what laws are? The general consensus of things that are people find bad. <laughs> well, that's the idea. But you vote for representatives. Those representatives come up with things that trickle down I mean, well you know. yeah i mean i'm not talking about like you know uh 
that I mean, like in 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 a broad sense, like yes, obviously, I don't think uh, the Patriots. I mean, how many laws have you contributed to the country? Me? Yeah. Um, I well, I mean, there's laws I've reinforced, like uh, the fact that I was drinking and driving for a long time, and uh, <laughs> how dangerous that was. <laughs> I, I think that was a good example of why that should remain illegal. <laughs> Did I write it? No. <laughs> Did but I, I proved it was a good idea. <laughs> Did I highlight it for everyone who needed to see this? <laughs> yes. They went for him for tax evasion. And while Capone's in jail awaiting trial, Ness found out about his first shortcomings as the leader of the squad. They found out that the Capone syndicate had taken a page out of the Untouchables playbook. Their office would wiretap by the mafia dudes. <laughs> so they got all fucking wiretapped after. Oh, I thought you were going to say he touched himself. <laughs> I am touchable. <laughs> all the all the work he'd been doing while Capone was in jail was being listened to. So after Capone was captured and put on trail, the arrests had been harder and harder to come by, and now Ness knew why. Elliot talked about how embarrassed he was about this even later in life. The first time Ness and Capone Ness had ever seen Capone with his own very eyes in real life was when Capone walked into fucking <laughs> court. Until then, he never saw him not once. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm hung up because you said with his own very eyes. <laughs> <laughs> his eyes were very eye. I uh, mix up words. <laughs> yeah, so that was the first time he actually ever saw him. And on October 17th, 1931, Capone was convicted of three counts of tax evasion and given 11 years in prison. Ness was one of the few federal agents that traveled with Capone from the Cook County Jail to the Dearborn Station for transport to the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary. Penitentiary. This was the only time the two men actually spoke. One time. Uh, it was in a prison transfer vehicle, so who knows what they actually said to each other, but I'm sure it would have been fun to hear. Just Elliot, like, see, I told you all my friends would take you down. Yeah, Dummy. Capone like with handcuffs, like I'm gonna touch you. <laughs> I'm gonna do it. <laughs> Come on, Nessie. But I'm untouchable. But I'm untouchable. <laughs> you can't touch me. You can't touch me. <laughs> That's the whole car ride. Right? It was just them jumping around <laughs> the back seat, trying not to get. <laughs> so after Capone's arrest and uh, sent to jail, the press was all over Elliot even more than they were before. Uh, he was the hero they needed for the prohibition movement. Fan mail starts flooding in. Uh, the press made Elliot and the Untouchables bigger than what they were. Elliot and the Untouchables got so much press, they gave out an absorbent amount of interviews to the papers. Um, just because Capone is in jail didn't mean the Untouchables were done arresting his men. But now the gangsters were all in hiding, and he was just wiretapped. So Elliot changed the attitude in Chicago. He actually did. Gangsters weren't running around like they ran the city. Elliot kept up the pressure. So after Capone's arrest... Ness thought it was going to be a great feeling. He was like, I finally did it. He got a blue moment. He felt empty. It's not as what he expected. He wanted it to be a happy moment. Made him sad. And as soon as Capone was put behind bars, the Untouchables were disbanded. That was the end of them. Ness gets a big promotion. Uh, he ends up becoming the lead investigator for the entire Prohibition squad, not just the Capone squad. Didn't matter, though, because by this time, they all knew that the Volset Act was going to be repealed within the year or so and they're going to be out of a job so for the next two years year and a bit people just kept getting laid off or transferred to different departments until it was just elliot by himself in the prohibition bureau 
1933 when the act was officially repealed. Uh, now, there's still a few like liquor laws left, uh, like bootlegging still existed, but it wasn't exciting for Elliot anymore. And he was transferred to the alcohol beverage unit, later renamed the alcohol tax unit. So after the Voldsit Act was repealed, Elliot just became a footnote. People started to forget about him pretty quickly. He was a hero for a law that no one actually liked. It's <laughs> just what it was. Elliot and Edna had to move to Cincinnati while he was reassigned to the Alcohol Tax Bureau. And what Elliot really wanted to do was join the Bureau of Investigation, which later turned into the FBI. Now, in the biography that I read, Elliot Ness, The Rise and Fall of American Hero, says the reason Elliot didn't get into the Bureau was because the young upstart Bureau of Investigations guy was named J. Edgar Hoover. J. Edgar Hoover knew all about Elliot Ness, and he knew about how popular it was, and he was afraid to be upstaged by him. So Hoover squashed his resume, said, fuck this guy. He's not a good hire. Damn. Elliot Ness is transferred again in 1934, this time to Cleveland. Uh, it's actually for another promotion. He was now the head of the Alcohol Tax Bureau for the Cleveland area, which included all of Northern Ohio as well. And he's loving every minute of this part of the job. He thought it was a great step in his career. And he was brought in for his expertise. And Elliot excelled in Cleveland. And he brought down many bootlegging operations using his experience from taking down Capone. Did he finally start making that that big money, those those crisp Grover Clevelands? <laughs> is that what the... Is, President Cleveland? Was that a Oh yeah, his name is fucking Grover. He's a he's got a fucking Muppet name. Sesame Street. <laughs> Whatever the fuck. No Muppets. Right? Maybe a Muppet has a presidential name. What, that yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it does kind of make sense with uh President Big Bird and uh <laughs> President Ertin, Ertin Ozzy Bear Wilson. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> President uh, Animal. <laughs> <laughs> Vice President Animal, yeah. Uh, <laughs> All right, so yeah, Elliot excels in Cleveland. He brought down many bootlegging operations using his experience from taking down Capone. This is where I first started hearing about Elliot Ness drinking. Uh, not like he was an alcoholic, but more like socially with his squad. Like he would have a few drinks with the boys after work. And they all looked up to him because kind of, he was still kind of a pretty big name in the law enforcement industry, I guess. So everybody that worked for him. <laughs> industry. <laughs> I don't know. Everyone looked, looked You're not wrong. Him. You're not wrong, unfortunately. I know. That's what it's like. I guess that's what it because it's what it is. Yeah. But they all loved him. They all like thought he was a big hero, you know? In the first few months, Cleveland also where Elliot starts to question his profession, though, because he was now like taking, he went from taking down big gangsters, Capone, like guys like Capone. Now he's arresting people for having empty beer bottles. And that was one of the laws right after Prohibition. You had to destroy liquor bottles when you were done with them. Like they weren't allowed to have just sitting around. Okay. Oh. Probably hold, probably had like tax stamps on the actual bottom themselves, and then when people bootlegging them and recapping them, it was probably what interesting. It was. Yeah, yeah. So he he was just thinking like, this is all about money now. Like, where's the moral high ground? How am I any better than the bootleggers? Really, all I'm doing now is just collecting money for the government. I don't like this job. Well, the ATF got kicked around to so many different organizations for a while because nobody wanted them. At one point, they were only under the Treasury Department. I bet you this is what the Alcohol Tax Bureau turned into, right? The ATF. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is. Yeah. yeah. Now, this is where I start hearing about Elliot womanizing. The first time you start hearing about him uh, banging no. floozies. Yeah. Uh, apparently, he was flirty with, and I quote, anyone who wore a dress. Uh, <laughs> that could have been a guy. That's all I'm saying. I could have just said woman. You didn't just have to say anybody in a dress. There's guys that do that. 
then uh, there's a new mayor of Cleveland elected in 1935, a guy named Harold H. Burton, and he was considered a reformist, and he was a controversial elect, and he vowed to change Cleveland. The mayor before that was just on a boat with a gangster not that long ago, and like one of their waitresses fell off the edge, and they called it an accident. Like, and this guy came in and he's like, I'm all for law and order. I'm here to change the city. I'm going to make everything better. Like, and everyone kind of went with it because it was a pretty big scandal at the time where the girl fell off the boat and died with the gangster friend. Found to change Cleveland. And at this time, Cleveland had a reputation of a city that couldn't enforce the law. Cleveland had what was called a safety director in charge of both the fire department and police departments. The guy who had been doing this job in the past was like super corrupt. He was on the boat too, by the way. By the way, the safety director helped chuck the girl off. Nice. They weren't concerned. Like the none of these police officers were concerned about any type of laws. There was a big gambling town. They were more into like lining their pockets with gambling money. Why the fuck would I stop that? Um, so Burton fired that guy, vowed to hire a new safety director. Now Burton wanted to get the attorney general, Mitchell. William D. Mitchell to take over as the safety director. Mayor Burton even interviewed him and he thought he had him hired for sure. Mitchell rejected because he knew that the job was going to be exceptionally hard and he didn't like the politics that would be involved with the job as well. He just wanted to be the AG, which I feel like that's a very political job too. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like that's super political. Yeah. I I don't, I don't want any of these politics. Like, you know I mean? Like who and who should not, be chucked off a boat that's too divisive you know what yeah. I mean? that's i'm not into i'm not a political person i don't talk about <laughs> boat murders i just want to take down capone that's all the stuff i want to do Cleveland had a reputation of being one of the worst crime cities in america he knew he'd be up underfunded too because they they just were in a depression no money for any police officer or anything he just didn't want to deal with the fucking hard job honestly so once they knew that mitchell had declined the job offer the press starts to speculate that elliot ness the young prohibition hero was going to be the next candidate the mayor didn't think that at all there was no the mayor's like what no i never said that elliot ness what but then burton starts to think like maybe this is a good idea and he takes the idea from the media and offers the 33 year old prohibition agent the job Burton was skeptical, but he also knew that if Elliot were to be appointed, he was going to shake up Cleveland's underground for sure. He knew all about the untouchables. So at the age of 33, on December 11th, 1935, Elliot Ness was appointed the city of Cleveland's youngest ever director of public safety. For this job, he earned $7,500 $7, a year. Between the fire and police department, Ness was in charge of nearly 2,000 people. First thing Elliot does is seek out his old professor to ask him some questions. August Vollmer, like I talked about him earlier, was the father of modern law enforcement. Elliot knew if that he used the same tactics as he did to take down Capone, that it would probably work. So bashing heads and crashing into doors and doing that kind of stuff had to be done at first, but his goal, if he's going to be in this, was to professionalize the police force. So he needed Vollmer to help him modernize the force. So he got advice on how to start using modern techniques like soil and fiber analysis to solve crimes. Polygraph tests were introduced to him he didn't really use them until later but he did start to use them then he was one of the first guys to use them and also crime prevention which wasn't a thought back then like just getting kids off the streets and shit like that you know what i mean like uh, giving ymcas a chance shit like that starting scout troops that's what he ended up doing he also changed the he wanted to change the entrance exam for the police force to make it slightly harder so less goons get in and more smart people get in um hire people with college education if preferable and bigger roles in the force 
the modern tactics would slowly be put into place. And within the first year of being elected, Ness was nicknamed the Boy Scout or College Cop. So as soon as he calls up Volmer, he realizes the first thing he needs to do, though, is to start weeding out the bad cops. All right. If you're not a boy and you're not my age, get the fuck <laughs> out of here. <laughs> oh. He convinced Mayor Burton to let him hire a team of independent civilian investigators to look into the police and prosecute them if need be. So he went for the same tactic. Let's make a little small force and I'll take care of these fucking corrupt assholes. And he also put it out there too, like first day on the job. If there's any police out there that want to rat out their colleagues, you'll give them full immunity and protection from the others if you do. Okay? Such a fucking <laughs> shitty dad move. You know what I mean? The first person who tells it gets off. Don't get in trouble. <laughs> All right. There's one easy way out of this, you motherfuckers. Tattle. <laughs> Who's going to tattle tat? <laughs> so as he's doing this, Elliot's still a media whore, and they figure out that he's this new plan. And they start calling this new squad of police police the unknowns. So they're trying to make fun of the untouchables. I love how the media is just making fun of them too. Like it's a play on the untouchables and ironic because everybody knew who the unknowns were. It's not like it was like this big secret police force. And the unknowns did take out many corrupt police. The as soon as he does that, raids intensify. They start to do he starts doing raids on the bootleggers like he was doing before in Chicago. Through the first 18 months on the job, crime rate in Cleveland went down by approximately 25%. Juvenile crime dropped by 80%, mostly because he started scout groups all across the city with himself, other officers, and reformed gangsters becoming scoutmasters. <laughs> this guy here is uh, Anthony. He used to beat people's faces, but he said sorry. So here, take these 10 kids. Oh, my God. <laughs> Convictions were up 20%. Uh, over 200 policemen were forced to turn in their resignations, while a few others were convicted and sent to jail. Nice. Uh, one of the articles about Elliot's achievements read, quote, Director Ness lifted fear from the hearts of the honest man. Cleveland is a better, cleaner, more wholesome place, a safer place in which to do business. So he was doing good in Cleveland. And after bringing crime rate down, this is when Elliot starts with the improvements in crime fighting and prevention techniques. So with all the success he already had in the city, he convinced the city council to give him some money so he could open a police academy. This is when the test for, to become an officer became harder. Uh, he started to do background checks for potential police. Cadets got a mandatory two-year probation and tested their temperament and physical prowess. That's what Elliot's really held physical fitness in high regard he was like always working out he wanted he didn't ex he expected everyone to be in good shape so he kept in good shape you want to look you like to me strong and quick so that people can't touch you <laughs> <laughs> you gotta keep you looking like you're under 30 i know we're all over 30 now but under 40 <laughs> if you can't be a boy my age you gotta look like a boy my age <laughs> So by the fall of 1938, Ness had cleaned up the police force and lowered crime to a manageable point. Uh, Ness was beginning to look valuable in the private practice. And he'd been offered a few jobs in private practice, making tens of thousands of dollars. But he turned them down, stating that he wanted to stay a few years to show the world what an honest police force can accomplish. Now, in those couple of years when the police were a lot more reformed, he decided to take on traffic because traffic was a huge issue in Cleveland. And actually, traffic might be his biggest legacy, reforming traffic. Elliot took it upon himself to fix it. Elliot proposed a bunch of changes that in the traffic regard. So he created a separate court system for traffic violations. So he created traffic court. 
He ordered motorcycles to enforce traffic laws, so he bought some motorcycles. He also hired EMS and traffic patrol cars to help with all the shitty drivers and the injuries. And when Elliot first started the job, job, traffic-related deaths were sitting at 250 per year. But in 1939, Elliot had those down to 115 per year. After seeing the stats, Ness was awarded the American Legion's National Safety Award. Also, efficiency of officers was high on his list to reform as well. So Elliot instituted that two-way radios be in every squad car. So they never had radios in the car before. They would actually go to, you know, they have little police stations all over like New York City. They would have to like hop to police station, police station to get the next bit of answers. So he he got, I I think that's fucking super like, as if you never thought of putting radios in the cars. Uh, he also modernized the office too. So we got typewriters, teletype, radio, telegraph, and all that old technology to speed up all the paperwork, helping things rolling in the right direction. Six ladies can type at the speed of one now that we've got this telegraph. Wait, how does that make sense? It doesn't. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. That's horribly inefficient. <laughs> no, they, the typewriters is what sped everyone up. They, they like... They used to have to wait, oh, especially the traffic department. When you'd get like a ticket, you'd be sitting in there while somebody would be like writing out your ticket or whatever. They just type them up really as fast as they possibly could. And it made Damn. traffic was a bad one. I don't understand why that was so hard to figure out, but Elliot did it. Wait, yeah. How did they write you a traffic ticket out on the street? Did you have to like appear at the police station to receive the ticket that you were issued? I or did you like pop, you didn't get was there like a cop with like a typewriter in the fucking car? <laughs> I was just like, all right. <laughs> I I think before him, uh, they would just arrest you, bring you down to the station, type you up a ticket, and send you on your way. That sounds your like a fucking nightmare. Could you imagine I getting agree. arrested for speeding today? <laughs> I agree. That's they. That's probably why the radios were really good. They call in and be like, "This guy, Edward Johnson, I just uh, gave him a ticket for whatever. If he doesn't make summons, yeah." He'll- you know, like, hey, we're beating the shit out of this guy. Come out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking 1930s police radio. Breaker, breaker, over. We're in a high speed, 33 mile per hour chase <laughs> with uh, car. Well, cars are all the same, so a car. Uh, license plate <laughs> number four. <laughs> people have have their own amateur radios, and they just hear that cops are beating the shit out of people, and they come and join in. <laughs> Elliot Institute, like the first, probably one of the first police departments in America to hire black people. Uh, he Elliot hired black people because he thought they would be better to patrol their own neighborhoods. So there's a, he was just too scared to go there. Fucking, I, I find that there's so failed racism in that, but it's like you said, you're right. It's so racist. It's progressive. So I don't know what to say. <laughs> uh, Elliot modernized the police to uh, in part what it is today. I'm not saying it's perfect, but it was better than before. Like I said, most times changing the status quo doesn't make you friends, though. Uh, A lot of the time, people are resistant to change. So while trying to fight crime in Cleveland, Elliot made an enemy of the unions. He was trying to prevent the racketeering Mm -hmm. from all sides, from unions, gangster, anyone. He wasn't picking sides. He was neutral on the crime fighting thing. So unions were strong and they fought him with at every end. Elliot would send policemen to bust up union activity from time to time. That's how much of a, like... Oh, yeah? You want a racketeer here? I'll bust up this union. Yeah, the unions didn't like Elliot, but whatever. He he did. He got a lot done. And with all the good Elliot was doing, reducing crime rates, there's always that one that got away. Uh, Ness had a big one that got away. Uh, there was a serial killer active for quite some time during Elliot's tenure. The serial killer was dubbed the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run. 
Now, the murders are now more commonly known as the Cleveland Torso Murders. Uh, the Torso Killings are happening from 1935 to 1938. Now, I'm not going to tell you everything about the Torso Killings because that's going to be our third episode of the series. But he was a suspect, right? No. Oh, he should have Will you please tell me that it's because someone was killing people with a torso? <laughs> yes, that's exactly what he was Thank doing. You. 100%. Thank you. Yeah, I'm not going to tell you everything about it but uh, because it's subject of the third, but I will tell you the basics so we can understand something that I think shaped Ness for the rest of his life beyond this. Most of his victims in this case were homeless people, and this case haunted Elliot. Since Ness wasn't solving this, he took hell from... Not only the mayor, but also from the media. Mayor Burton told him to stop whatever you're doing and investigate this guy. So he ran a parallel investigation to the actual investigation that was going on. The last, I'm not going to get into everything, but the last few body parts that were chopped up into bits were left outside in his building in plain view of Elliot's office downtown. So Elliot thought the killer was taunting him, and he probably was. So Elliot did something drastic. Elliot ordered the smashing down of the homeless encampments to find the person. His logic was, if he's hunting in the homeless encampments, he must be either from the encampments or I can bust up his hunting ground. We need to stop him from terrorizing these homeless people by terrorizing all <laughs> the homeless people first. <laughs> That's the nicest thing he did. So he he rounds up all the homeless people that are there, tossing through their shit, looking for like some sort of hint. And anybody that didn't have a job or any prospects at all, arrested. Brought in the paddy wagon right to the station, question for hours on end. My God, look at all of them. They <laughs> all have torsos. <laughs> any one of them could be a murder weapon. Any one of those torso weapons could kill any one of us. This is a dangerous room. Bunch of um, torso-wielding monsters. <laughs> <laughs> look at how they carry them all menacingly on those legs. So yeah, so he arrests all the homeless people, gets rid of everyone that's there. Then they get animal control people to come and take away all the pets that were in the homeless encampment, take them away, put them in shelters or whatever. Then he ordered the entire homeless encampment burnt to the ground. Elliot figured if he burned down the killer's hunting grounds, they wouldn't be able to work, wouldn't be able to do anything. Needless to say, this move was highly criticized by the media and the people of Cleveland. This is the first time in Elliot's career where he starts to lose the admiration of the Clevelandites, if not the world. Whoever heard about that, I would imagine is pretty pissed about it. Well, like, I mean, beyond, like, the humanitarian issues surrounding that, which are absurdly heinous, can you fathom how bad that would smell oh yeah i knew that's where that was going and i imagine there was a nice like corner of the city that was not traveled into for the next fucking month, month oh and my fucking god you're just walking to work and just puking every day <laughs> uh, 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 just yeah i own a dry cleaning business it's great for me <laughs> <laughs> and the fire and brimstone didn't work it didn't really drum out anyone so elliot decides he's going to take another tactic what he's going to do He's going to get the fire marshals to go into each house near Kingsbury Run for fire code violations. Look for fire code violations. This was the way around him get, needing to get search warrants to get in people's houses. If their houses oh. are... Yeah. Cool. He found a constitutional loophole. What a yeah. great So that probably, yeah. that probably led to like them breaking up the police department and the fire department, huh? It <laughs> sounds like this would be the reason that they... 
uh, Elliot's this job for a long time after this. Oh, uh, yeah, no, I believe it. But, they, you know, people look back on it and they're like, oh, that was probably the wrong Yeah, place. probably. I, I don't know the specifically why they got divided out, but probably, you're probably right, honestly. They didn't find, he was looking for a kill room. He's like, you guys go in there, look for fire violations, but also a kill room. Never found a kill room, found a bunch of violations. So that kind of fucked over a bunch of people too. <laughs> but did, it, did like long-term beneficial effects, did he reduce the number of fires by chance? Do we know that? Um, I think when he at, when he made the giant like homeless person fire, he like negated his stats for the year. You know what I mean? That's like bigger fire. than. Oh public. yeah. Cancel them out. Yeah. yeah. Kind of fucked him over trying to do that. All the work he's doing with the police, he wasn't doing work on his marriage with Edna. And Edna was kind of like, she got divorced. By 1939, Elliot and Edna get divorced. Uh, Edna had had her heart broken for years. She just wanted to be a part of his life. But he was too consumed in his work and after work activities. And by after work activities, I mean, she suspected that he was banging chicks. And he was. (laughs) And it wasn't chicks. Yeah. And it's like, he never, he never forgave me for not being a boy his age. <laughs> did they have any kids? No, they didn't. They never did. Never oh, damn. Them. I just would have loved to read like the, you know, the book by the sun or something. Oh God, that would have been so great. I mean, again, he wouldn't have kids because there's no way he can guarantee they'd be a boy and they'd never be his age. <laughs> Yeah, so now it's upgraded. Uh, some of his fellow officers said that Elliot would, quote, screw anything in a skirt now. So it's uh, not flirt anymore. He's screwing anyone in a skirt. Uh, and it was more of like a homebody and didn't like to party like Elliot. Uh, Elliot, like by the 1939, he was partying like every night, going out with his, his boys, having a few drinks. I don't know. He partied so much that the press assumed Elliot was single. And on the front page of the newspapers, they called him the most Elliot Bachelor in Cleveland. And he had a wife. <laughs> like, she just was at home. They called him the most Elliot Bachelor? Eligible. Oh. Did I say Elliot? <laughs> it's not like you said Elliot. I, it wouldn't put it past me. When I get excited, I <laughs> skip words. No one cannot, can, no one can deny this Bachelor's <laughs> Elliotness. <laughs> just him flexing. Yeah, Edna gets a divorce. And she moves back to Chicago and never remarries. She keeps the name Ness and led a quiet and unassuming life until her death in 1994 at the age of 88. Nice. Um, Elliot was probably full-blown cheating on Edna, to be honest. The only reason I say that is because by the fall of 39, Elliot marries again. Uh, he was only single for 10 months before he married Eveline McAndrew. She was an artist. She was married to a guy named McAndrew before Ness. I don't know what his first name was. I couldn't figure it out. Just McAndrew. He's McAndrew now. One name, last name. What are they doing? Hmm. 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 One or the other? Yeah, just blowing dogs. Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Dressing up like a dog and blowing themselves. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Eveline had just been divorced a month before they got married. Are we Are we sure it's not Evelyn? It's Eveline. What the fuck? Yeah. Unless that guy who was doing, like, pronouncing it was pronouncing it wrong. It could be Evelyn. Interesting. Interesting. They got married quietly on October 14th, 1939. Uh, Elliot didn't want people to think poorly of him because divorce wasn't accepted in common today, so he didn't invite anybody. He didn't want the press to slam him for getting divorced and getting remarried within a year. Um, so she was the opposite of Edna. She liked to go out and party with Elliot at night. Uh, and after the two were married... 
She moved to Cleveland and got a job as a fashion illustrator at the Higby's department store because Elliot got her a job. More nepotism. And Elliot and Eveline, Evelyn, now you got me. It's Eveline is what the guy said. Now you're going to make me say Evelyn the whole time. I I think he might have been dumb. It could be. She was drunk and mess. They were both a drunken mess during this marriage. They were Cleveland's power couple, though. Like, being famous was different back then. If you were, like, a lawman like that, that's how you got famous. Not from, like, movie guest stars were famous, too. Don't get me wrong. But, like, Elliot Ness and her, Eveline or Evelyn, were both fucking super famous. Uh, they were, like, the, what do you, what'd you call the bougie people. Like, the fucking rich. Elite? I guess. But, like, like famous because the same reason that What's Her Nuts is famous. Fucking Kim Kardashian for nothing. Just because. Well, I guess he's doing law mm-hmm. stuff, too. But she's kind of an artist. I guess it's a little different. But it was just different. Now it's only movie stars and sports stars. It kind of still happens. Like, why should politicians be as famous as they are? Because, like, it's weird. And, and, I mean, I don't know how it is over there. But, like, you see so many, like, copy-paste of, like, these Congress people in the media. And they're actually only representing, like, a district of, like, a few thousand people or something. Like, Yeah, I guess that's true. Because, like, yeah, exactly. If it's only, like. 20,000 people. That's not even a fraction of America's population. Yeah. But everybody knows his name. Yep. It's because they're the loudest moron at a certain thing or whatever. Yeah. It's usually the loudest moron who wants that job for sure. Who knows why we deify people who don't deserve it. Yeah. I I just find it crazy that he's like super famous. He just, all he did was clean up corruption in a city. I feel like that (laughs) should have been like, well, I I say all he did, but he did a lot, honestly. Yeah. I mean, I think if you work for the government in any capacity, if for some reason you're not like reelected or your contract isn't renewed, you should be publicly executed. <laughs> yeah, 100% agree. People can get not reelected for a lot of different reasons. I, it could be like a negative reason. Like if Trump would have successfully turned the election onto his side, you know what I'm uh-huh. saying? Like then the opposite, like the counter to him you're saying would be ex- executed no 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 just not if you don't get reelected. like like if you if you did bad enough job it means like you probably you probably should be killed like like if you get impeached there should be like an extra option of like straight straight to death like i'm on yeah. board with that but just yeah, like yeah, not yeah, not yeah. like getting elected again you know it's kind of like a no, no. That. I, I'm retiring. I'm, I just didn't want to be in the election. I thought I was done. Right, right, right. <laughs> no, 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 no. If you want to, if you want to, if you want a peaceful. You're saying if you, if you're the incumbent and you run again, you better fucking win. Yes. Or else you die. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm more, I'm cool with killing the old ones too. Just a burden on society. All right. Yeah. Even though Elliot was in the spotlight all the time, people couldn't catch him adultering and he still was. He's still banging other chicks. I don't think Evelyn, Evelyn, fuck ever knew but i'm assuming so and i'll tell you why in a bit and elliot would be banging anyone barely keeping it a secret and the press wasn't snatching onto that which i find weird and he's also hammered all the time at this point 1940 1940 he starts getting real drunk he had the theory of like i work hard i can party harder and Mm -hmm. with that old fucking saying like you start to burn out and that's what elliot starts to do in 1941 frank lausch was elected as mayor of cleveland and he took out our buddy Burton, who was a Republican. Lausch was a Democrat. And Burton was the one who basically made Elliot. Soon after Lausch was elected, Elliot's budget was axed by the newly elected Democratic mayor. And so ended the unknowns. And Elliot still kept his job, but the new mayor didn't think the budget should be as high, seeing as crime was now at a manageable spot. So the years go by, Elliot gets comfortable partying with his new wife, and life goes on. 
Eveline and Ness wanted children, but they also were unable to have children. So in 1942, Elliot gets in a car accident with Eveline in the passenger seat. No one's injured, but it looked bad because speculation was that either Elliot was drunk driving or Eveline was drunk driving. Both wouldn't look good on the covers of the newspapers. So supposedly, Elliot finally became touchable and covered it up. You can touch me now. You can touch me. (laughs) The press got wind of the accident uh, anyway and tried to report on it, but the police report was nowhere to be found. The guy who he got in an accident with, Elliot got in an accident with, didn't want to press charges. So as it was no harm, no foul, Elliot didn't see a big deal. But the press didn't see it that way. The port was eventually found, and the media called it a cover-up, and Elliot denies it in the papers publicly. Honestly, it didn't matter. The public wanted a scandal for Elliot because he was always like, Mr. High and Mighty, I'm the untouchable guy. They, it's a perfect person to slam down, right, in the media. Someone that's always like highly regarded, you find out a big scandal, everyone wants to pay attention to that. That sells papers. So that, that scandal came out, and then another scandal broke. Young white ladies were caught having sex with black people for money. So then the press started to demonize Ness for not being tough on prostitution over his six years as safety director. Not only prostitution, all sexual crimes, sodomy, prostitution, gay sex. Uh, And since he wasn't tough on these crimes, it was surely Elliot's fault that the blacks were corrupting the nice white girls. You know, Elliot, if Elliot just would have done something, these black guys wouldn't be having sex with our white prostitutes. How dare they? The scandal pretty much put him back into a big, huge, long blue mood. Pretty much broke him, honestly. Basically forced him out of his job as safety director. And I shouldn't say forced. He more like forced him to recognize that he didn't have the sway over the city like he once had. Uh, His moral authority had now dwindled. He lived off the untouchables reputation for years, but covering up a car accident made that much more fun for the media to scandalize. So that goes on for a little bit of time. Then World War II starts. And the U.S. starts spending $75 million a day on war preparedness. Elliot wants out of the safety director job because he figured he didn't deserve it anyway. I was never good at it anyway. <laughs> After the scandals, he sees war looming in Europe and he figures, you know what I can help with? The military. But he can't go to war because he's 40 now. So he applies for a job at the Social Protection Division of the military. Now, please try and guess what the Social Protection Division of the military would have been in 1942. Mm. Um, keeps the gays out. Good guess. Oh, yeah. yeah keeps go. the gays in. No, no, it's not a good guess as you got it right. I just like oh, the guess. Oh, oh, oh. Keeps the gays in. <laughs> you stay here, queen. You're with us. <laughs> yeah, it's, it really, really has big morality police vibes. So. It is. It, it's such a fucking Elliot Ness job. So he's trying to get the director job of this. Social Protection Division was a division that was to help stamp out VD on military sites or people trying to join. Great. Many soldiers and potential recruits had symptoms of VD, which made them ineligible for service until they were cured. And penicillin wasn't not widely used at the time. And the current cure for syphilis was a mercury-based drug called salverson. Salverson made you sick for months after you took it, but it would kill off the syphilis. It actually worked, but... It would kill off everything in your body, but if you happened to survive, it worked. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Fucking, what do they call that thing that tries to... They try to use on the last resort on people with rabies? Uh, It's that metal that they pump into the Wolverine, right? 
quick silver. Adamantium? Yeah. 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 Fuck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Weapon axe. Yeah. That's how they got the idea. This one dude came out with fucking claws because he had siblings. Fucking awesome. Yeah, never mind my thing. That's it. <laughs> yeah, pe- penicillin I thought was earlier than that, but it only became widely distributed in 1943, so it was a year before any of this stuff, so... Yeah, and the military knew that they were eventually going to get into war and they needed all the men they could get. So they figured Elliot or somebody would be in this social protection division of the military. So Elliot gets the job and 1942 starts a fight VD the way he fought corruption in Cleveland by knocking down doors, pouring out booze. I'm just kidding. He made a little squad to infiltrate the brothels and figure out where the VD is coming from, who's giving it to who, who's got it, who needs to get rid of it. <laughs> So he gets the force and he sends them in. They start to figure some stuff out. And then Elliot's used to having a gigantic budget to do whatever he wants. Unfortunately, it's the military on a shitty fucking part of the military. So he, the social protection division couldn't afford his little task force. So that only happened for maybe a couple months. And yeah, now he's thinking like, how am I going to fight VD now? What We've got to rethink this. He ends up as a speaker to the soldiers on the dangers of VD. So he would just be like, Traveling from army base to army base, trying to tell everyone, you know what? This isn't a moral fight. This is why you don't <laughs> touch. I hate that that came full circle. Was... Bravo, my friend. Well done. I, I, well I'm done. pretty happy about it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he would go around giving speeches saying, this isn't a moral fight. We just want to keep everyone healthy. And he traveled from army base to army base. He and Evelyn were living out a suitcase. Evil Eye and Evelyn hated it. She despised this. She liked to be the socialite in town. During World War II, it was hard to get a place to live in Washington because that's where they had to move for their job. Because of the war, all the sudden influx of people moving to the to D.C. was crazy. So there was a lot. You, you could get hotel rooms, but you were only allowed to like stay for two weeks and then you get kicked out and this was a way of like i guess making the people who could afford a house just like try and find one i don't understand why they were kicking people out like if there's money there why do you care i guess whatever anyway so they're living out a fucking back of a car hotel rooms hotel to hotel they're not having fun at night anymore evelyn wanted to have fun at evil line whatever the fuck her name is the only thing they really kept from their old life was just getting hammered every night like just drinking so they just got fucking liquored every day Elliot actually paid attention to Eveline and he noticed that she was having a hard time with it to satisfy her need to create art. Elliot suggests like, Hey, there's a good art school in Washington called the Corcoran art college of art and design. And we'll enroll you. And she does enroll while there. Eveline meets her new lover, a woman. So uh, Evelyn probably a lesbian the whole time. She met up with a, another woman there. I don't, that's why I don't think she cared about Elliot's womanizing. I think she was just like womanizing herself when she, when Elliot was safety director, she always had a female bodyguard with her wherever she went. So I'm guessing that was a female bodyguard. You know what I mean? Mm. That's forties, 1940s code. Yeah. But she fell in love with this lady. She met her being like, she was one of her subject of her art pieces. The lady that comes in the middle of the room and like strips down so you can paint her. Like, I feel like that's a very cliche lesbian meetup story. I don't know if that's true, but I feel like it is. Yeah, it feels that way. Uh, Evelyn hated the lifestyle she was in with Elliot, and she's now in love. So by the end of World War II in 1945, her and Elliot had gotten a divorce. And this is the quote that is in the 
I don't know if this is from the book, actually. I think this is from the book, but not. It says she packed up her fur coat, a champagne bucket, and little else, and was out of Elliot's life permanently. So she got a fur coat, a champagne bucket, and left. Like, that's the fuck. <laughs> this is the worst. It's all you need, baby. Out. That's the worst storming out I've ever Vib- heard. Vibing out as a lesbian in the 1940s, it's all you need. After she left, she went to New York City, and she had a long career writing and illustrating kids' books. And oh. she she became pretty famous with that. Actually, some of her books are still around to this day. Like I remember having one when I was a kid. Old book it was probably like my mom's book when she was a kid. But yeah, so but she did end up marrying again after that career, basically like mid career in 1959 to a engineer named Arnold Bayard. And she had drunk a mess the whole time. I know they didn't like each other because her and Bayard stayed together for the rest of her life. Evelyn, uh, were but when she died in 1986 before mr bayard he had her cremated and her remains were just like left at the funeral place to just throw out the guy didn't care at all he just just chuck him please so nice. yeah she was a drunken mess the rest of her life she's got famous from her art like famous ish but yeah that's how she, she got just left at a funeral parlor bag of dust so let's let's just back up a bit here. So Elliot meets his third and final wife in late 1944. Still married, but he met her then. He broke up with his wife, and then they get married soon after on January 31st, 1946. This one was also a very quiet marriage. Her name was Elizabeth Michelow, or Betty, as she was known to everyone. She was 39 years old, so closer to his age. I'm sure he was like, ah, you're good. You're my age. Betty was the... <laughs> You're halfway there. You were really, yeah. There you go. Why? He's he's only like forty-two. Yeah, uh, no. I just mean so all she needed to be was a boy. So yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, the yeah, wrong half. Right. I thought you were making fun yeah. of me. I'm like, no, nah, I was right. No, 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 no. Yeah. Uh, it that you're a ma- a woman and touch a woman. Yeah. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'll take what I can get. You are in a skirt. <laughs> Betty was the only wife that Elliot later mentions in his book. That's the one I was talking about, The Untouchables, how she kind of like, Betty just replaces Edna for some reason. Like, Elliot's uh, knew this job, like at the Social Protection Division, was only a wartime job, and the war was kind of wrapping up. So to get ahead of it, Elliot quits his job two weeks after D-Day, and he wants to start get into business. He wants to start gathering money for his older years and figured business would be the spot to just do that. So in 1947... So he's in. He's starting businesses, but what's this? Uh, take a little side trip here by accident. I should have reordered that. But Betty, right around this time, I couldn't figure out the exact date, so I put it here. But right around this time, Elliot and Betty adopt a baby boy. Elliot's age. They name they name him the child Robert Elliot Ness or Bobby. He goes by Bobby. The couple moved back to Cleveland after Elliot got an offer to go work for the. Diebold company. Diebold's main product was a system that discharged gas into bank lobbies if the bank was being robbed. It was like a great, like that's what they would, that was a wicked tool for robbery prevention. Eh? You just like picking a lock and it's like fucking, it's a joker plan. I love it. Tear gas the fucking <laughs> entire bank. It's awesome. It's like a villain plan. What's, what's the most important thing inside of this bank? The people. No, dummy. The money. Keep up. That's only if I'm not in there. Me, the money, yeah. the people. 
when when someone robs this bank, all right, I'm telling you as the manager, you set <laughs> off the poison gas, okay? Don't worry. If you need help, I will be just behind this airproof door. <laughs> It's sealed around, so it's. I can definitely hear you. And uh, you get danger pay if you do it. You get an extra hundred dollars on your next paycheck. Like dead. <laughs> yeah, so I love that. It was a great fit, honestly, for them to hire Elliot Ness, America's crime fighter. You know, so they made him chairman of the Diebold board. Like I said, he wanted to be the businessman, gather money for his old age. So he also starts a few of his own businesses. At this point, he's just a workaholic and a drunk. And at this point in his life, he's not really just wants to work, wants to drink. He also wanted to be a better father to his son than his father had been to him. But Elliot always made work a priority over his family. At first with his job, he was pretty successful, but it didn't take long for his businesses, his own businesses to go under and for him to get fired from Diebold. Uh, He just wasn't good at the job, honestly, as hard as he tried. In 1947, Elliot runs for the mayor of Cleveland, which I find hilarious. He almost ran in 1941, but decided not to because he didn't want to leave his job as safety director when he was like, I just want to see what everyone, I just want everyone to see what a nice police officer can do in a city. You know what I mean? He, people were trying to get him to run for mayor then, but he's like, nah, I'm good. So now he decides six years later when his fame is faded, Mayor Burton left for the Supreme Court. That's where Mayor Burton went. And Elliot was at the peak of his popularity. He probably wouldn't have won back then. By 1947, Elliot was kind of a joke in Cleveland and he did not win. He lost the vote counts two to one. It was 67%. The other guy, 33% Elliot. Actually, it was like 32% and then 1% another guy. Mm. Elliot put most of his life savings into his campaign, and he was pretty in debt after the election. And then by 1951, after the election, Elliot's broke. He's got nothing. Still drinking like a fish. So between 1951 and 1956, Elliot worked many odd jobs to pay the bills. He was a... Bookstore clerk, wholesaler of electronics, frozen hamburger salesman. (laughs) How the fuck? How? I don't know. They don't go any further into it. Like, I... I, (laughs) read a fucking book that was 400 pages on Elliot Ness, literally one sentence about him being all those things. I'm like, no, more about the hamburger salesman. You can't tell me about the fucking intricate making of locks or some shit and you're not going to tell me about the hamburger? I hate you. It's simple, Richard. They weren't hiring at the Thawed Hot Dog Factory. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 1956, Elliot gets a gets another good job, actually a good paying job, working for a watermarking company called the Guarantee Paper. It was called Guarantee Paper. It was in Cowdersport, Pennsylvania. Fuck yeah. I'm going there uh, on Thursday for the bachelor party. Cowdersport? Yeah, my family has a cabin there. Nice. Oh, so, yeah. Okay. I was like, yeah. it does not sound like a hip happening town. <laughs> it's not. There's nothing happening there. There's no, there's barely a town. Yeah, the, the these guys that uh, guarantee paper, they saw Elliot Ness and went, you're that guy? You're Elliot Ness? Yeah, well, are you? They thought that him bringing his address book would bring in some pretty big name clients. They didn't think he was good at anything. He was just a salesman. Got a good pay. Yeah, it has, it has really big, like, failed, like, you know, like, college basketball star 
applying energy you know what i mean like, yeah for sure for like sure they pick up they're like huh he's got the same name as what the fuck let's call him and you know holy shit it's him <laughs> flash forward three months the novelty's worn off and they're like look all right we're sick of your shit <laughs> it's not even like it's not even that it's close though so so him and his family, once he gets a job, move to Pennsylvania, start the next chapter of their lives. Elliot was on sales calls all day, and no one wanted to buy any of the watermarking technology his company provided. They claimed it wasn't as good as what was already on the market. Whatever you're selling, Elliot, is trash. I've got better stuff. Most of his old colleagues that he called felt sad for Elliot. They thought he was, like, pathetic, like, as if you're doing this job. This is very sad of you. Nobody even pity bought, though. That's the funny part. Nobody was like, oh, well, I'll buy one. Nothing. Guarantee paper was mostly a sham. And Elliot didn't know this, though. So whatever money he had left, saved over there, he invested in the company. So when guarantee paper finally fell, Elliot was not only jobless, but highly in debt. During this time at guarantee paper, Elliot frequented a local bar to get smashed by himself. He would always love telling stories of the good old days when he was taken down Al Capone in Chicago to the regulars. An author named Oscar Fraley heard him lamenting on the past and approached the old Prohibition lawman. Fraley wanted to write a book on his exploits against America's toughest gangster. During this time, Elliot's name had faded, but Al Capone's name was a household name. He was known as the guy that beat the best gangster in America, made so much money. Al Capone died in 1947. Rich living in Florida. Sure, he was crazy from syphilis, and we'll talk about all that later, but he died loaded, having fun. Just so everybody knows. So yeah, Elliot was like kind of sad, pathetic at a thing. At a nobody knew who he was anymore. Starred faded. Oscar Fraley, though, loved his stories. So Fraley wanted to write a book about his exploits. Uh Elliot agreed, and they both began writing a, a biographical account of his times in Chicago. Elliot would write some pages, then send them to Fraley. Problem was, Elliot had a hard time remembering the good old days in detail, forgetting names and addresses and things that he did and people he worked for and people who worked for him. So Fraley would take those pages and fill in the blanks. Like I said, the book would eventually be published and entitled The Untouchables and would sell 1.5 million copies. But this wasn't until after Elliot's death on May 16, 1957, of a heart attack in his Pennsylvania home. He was 54 years old. And when Elliot died, the hype around his life had subsided and very few people knew who he was. When the book was selling like mad, America fell in love with Elliot once again, but he never got to see this. There wasn't even mention of Elliot's death in the Chicago or Cleveland newspapers. <laughs> he had been that Damn. forgotten about. He was so in debt that at the time that Betty didn't have enough money to bury him. So she cremated him and kept him in the garage. <laughs> Yeah, he was survived by his wife <laughs> and his son Bobby, but they both they both died young as well. Oh no! Bobby was diagnosed with leukemia in early 1976 and died shortly oh, after. Fuck! On August 31st, Betty died the year after on November 4th, 1977, of cancer. Bobby had a wife. She kept all the ashes, mixed them all together. In fact into one big bag and yeah they had no surviving relatives really threw so, it into a machine and created a cronenberg like Ness nessian 
not, it, not exactly. It just sat in a garage mixed in. And in 1997, I guess some historians were digging out his old niece's place and they found the ashes and they brought the bag of the three people's ashes to Wade Lake to be spread near the Lakeview Cemetery where a monument listing his accomplishments has been erected and is a very popular spot for people to visit to this day. Now, while The Untouchables sold many copies, like I said, it's filled with many historical inaccuracies, but it's considered to be broadly accurate, which is a broad statement. That doesn't matter, though, because Hollywood made a TV show called The Untouchables starring Robert Stack in 1959 and a movie starring Kevin Costner in 1987. When Elliot died, he was nearly $9,000 in debt and never got to see himself become the household name that he is today. Not only other $9,000 amateur. <laughs> this probably equals out. <laughs> Look, 1951 or whatever. I bet you it's yeah, fucking happy I'd be to be $9,000 in debt. <laughs> <laughs> that's how much your teeth are going to cost. <laughs> oh boy. Oh, that's a fucking low blow, dude. Prox- you know that bothers him. The I proximity know. that you are to the actual price is astounding. <laughs> Not only are there TV shows and movies made about the life of Elliot, there's beers named after him, there's a festival in his honor, and museums dedicated to him. True American icon for the time, I believe that. Now, what you'll come to find out in the next episode on Al Capone, that he led a much different life and things maybe ended up a bit better for him. Crime pays, I guess. I don't know. Being a shitty cop, that little narc cop didn't really pay out well for him, but he's remembered. He's around. So that's Elliot Ness. Wow. we got to kind of talk about him to be able to solve the crime of the torso murders, because I feel like needing backstory on Elliot Ness was necessary. So let's keep this in the bank for the, some fucking evidence for later. What do you think? Why do you think he became a big drunk like that, Rick? Let's hear it. Let's hear your answer on that. That's gonna be the mystery we solve. Why well, do I think he, slip- he became a big drunk? Yeah, like how that? can we slip? How can we slip so badly? What What do you think was the moment where he just was it hubris? Was it like boredom? Was it like always in him? What was it? What What made him? Yeah, I think he always had that motherfucking dog in him. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I was not expecting that at all. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you mean, yo. I know what you mean, yo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, all right, all right, brother. I got you, yo. Hard R, wow. Brother? Yeah. I can't say brother? You can. It's just aggressive with the hard R. Oh, my God. Okay. I I don't know how to not be racist anymore. I just say words. <laughs> <laughs> I just wait to be accused. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so that that was that. You guys got any more? Th- Usually, this is fun to like break it down and like make up theories, but that's not how this goes today. Unless you got theories on why he got why he got fucked up. You think that's in him the whole time, bro? <laughs> I don't know. I think well, he he fought so hard against you know alcohol in general. What I'm gonna say is like he was just you know at some point was like, all right, let's see what this is all about, and then. He was like, I'm fucking about this shit. <laughs> I'm about about it. Woof, woof. <laughs> if we find a quote, I just want to see that in quotes next to his picture. <laughs> I, honestly, that's how the episode's ending. We don't need yeah. to say anything else.
Do you got any final thoughts there, RJ? You got anything you want to say about you? I mean, like, he was a cop, so he automatically sucked. And then add to that, I think he just always was a piece of shit and a hypocrite. So, like, I guarantee you, like, any, any he is the, he very much has the energy of, like, would would tell on people proactively for things that, like, 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 you know, like the kid who like tells on people in school and the teachers are like just annoyed that the fact that they're even having to interact with this kid, they're like, I don't care. Like, I, fine. Yes. Yeah. They did a bad thing. Okay. <laughs> like that's, that's yeah. what that guy's all about. Very much. Like I saw, I saw, he said, he said a bad word in lunch on Tuesday and <laughs> Yeah, I find it what I the thing I find really interesting is how we just glaze over how much of a cock he was in this later part of his life. When and actually he did a lot in Cleveland too. But like you just all you really know is how he took down Al Capone. That's how famous Al Capone is. You know, he made uh, the police officer that arrested him famous. That's what I think. I don't think uh, if with Sans Al Capone, this guy would be another nameless, faceless police officer. Yeah, and like, and who's to say that like the way that he did a lot of that shit wasn't wildly fucking unethical, like beyond even the things that we know that are unethical. Like, you know, like look at, look at fucking Rudy Giuliani. Like everyone adored him. He was, you know, America's mayor because he like helped take down the mob in New York. Well, guess who fucking swooped in and took over? Just like a bunch of more fragmented, like mostly the Russian mob. And now, almost verifiably, Rudy Giuliani is just owned by Russia. <laughs> like, he's a complete fucking joke. Like, Oh, for sure. Uh, yeah. if He was, oh, he always sucked. I feel like if 9-11 didn't happen, Rudy Giuliani would just be another New York City mayor, honestly. Exactly. Like, 9-11, too, is another. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly what put him, you know, to, to start him. He would have been fucking nothing without it. And I mean, not even nothing. He would have been like he really could have just fucking coasted. But like th these people, they always had Rick's right. Actually, they he always had that dog in him. He was always a piece woof, of woof. shit. Yeah. Yeah. Woof, woof. <laughs> and I think the worst part about 9-11 was bringing prominence to Rudy Giuliani, right? Yeah. The worst thing about now. Oh, yeah, undoubtedly. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Yeah. Oh, 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 no, it killed 2,000 New Yorkers. Boo. <laughs> <laughs> Says the you guy know how many of them there are? I just find that an interesting, like, like way to get famous. You know, it's like the Monica Lewinsky sucked a dick to become famous. You know what I mean? Like, you could become famous off somebody. Uh, she became infamous, though, because people fucking hate women, you know? She like is hated by people, like hated. She is not. She is pitied by lots, many. Bullshit, bullshit. Yeah, I mean, like now, now more so. But yeah, I mean, people fucking dragged her. I mean, like how did a, how did a president like Clint, Clinton's still positively viewed by the left, which is completely wrong. I mean, not like his and his wife. Good nah. version of the left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's very very <laughs> odd how. I mean, I agree like with both of you to some extent, but like. I'm more like uh, I like I don't think she like sucked a dick to get famous. I think she sucked a dick to suck the president's dick because no, like, honestly, like, mad respect. That's cool. Yeah, but like not, not yeah, to I get mean, famous. I, I don't think yeah. Elliot Ness took down Al Capone to get famous. What I'm saying is it's funny how Al somebody dick to get famous. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> somebody somebody else's thing, like somebody else's life, can make like shine and light on somebody else's life to make them famous. I find that super interesting. You know what I mean? Like that's so. Yeah. Had it not been for like one event or one thing, like Giuliani would be just if it wasn't for 9-11 or, you know, there's other people that just peripherally get famous from these big world things. I, I can't think of any other good examples, but that's 
it's just interesting that that happened that way because Elliot is kind of boring kind of just an old drunk really at the end yeah. of his life kind of a waste of all right all right i mean relax 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 you're really really attacking future me here fuck you're elliot ness <laughs> he's gonna, he's gonna no, no, no 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 just the just you know the the potential like drinking and end of life type of you know stages there yeah i'm not i'm not early stage stages of elliot ness i'm, I'm, yeah, I'm dude, late stage ba- elliot ness. back off him he's got i'm, a, I'm a late years. stage i'm a late stage early bloomer elliot ness i'm on my third divorce here richard by elliot ness measurements i'm almost dead yeah, he's he's got another thirty years before his heart attack. Do you play Roblox? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, they didn't say how much in debt he was in because of Robux. Oh no, he found three Richards. You're like me. You're like me. You're like me. Uh oh, we're, we're the Untouchables <laughs> right now, and Rick's going to kill himself with booze. <laughs> this is fucked up. Shit. I just watched Private Dicks, and I think RJ's the funniest. What? Come on. Oh yeah, that's the uh the Are you bored? Fish. No, no, no. I just I just I was watching RJ and then I saw like something swim past his head. Yeah, it's a 13-year-old goldfish in that tank. Yeah, is it 13 years old or is that what Misty keeps telling you when she replaces the dead ones so you don't cry? <laughs> <gasps> oh my god, that's terrible, Richard. Don't say that. <laughs> She How just, could you? He's that, a, that's that's Tana He always Mount had a suspicion, and you just that she's flipping money under my pillow whenever I lose my teeth now, and that the tooth fairy isn't real. And you might say, "Why am I still losing teeth at thirty-one?" But 